Welcome to Boomeranging, from expat to repat, a podcast that explores the question, what could be so hard about returning home after years living overseas? I'm your host, Margot Anderson, and in each episode, I will sit down with a former Aussie expat to discuss how they survived repatriation and reverse culture shock, how they navigated the logistics of careers, friends, and family to successfully find their new place at home, and all without losing their global spirit. If you have just returned home, are thinking about it, or just love a good yarn told by professional globetrotters, then I have no doubt you'll enjoy meeting this diverse group of Australians. The Waite family were on an 18-month travel adventure when COVID interrupted their plans. They were in Australia for the Southern Hemisphere summer as part of their trip to visit Michael Waite's family when the pandemic and family tragedy struck. Soon, the formerly Seattle-based family, who on their way to Asia, the Middle East and Africa, found themselves living between the two rural towns of Normanville and Narracourt in South Australia, contemplating the 360-degree pivot on their three- to five-year plan. With home for now being Normanville, a town of a 1,000 people and an 80-minute drive south of Adelaide, and Narracourt, a town of 5,000 people, four hours away, Michael put his senior finance career, which saw him run for state treasurer of Washington State in 2016, temporarily on hold. During the lockdown, he worked on his COVID side project, starting the Narracourt News, which created its own set of headlines. Now he and his wife are keen to ignite their careers while living in a regional area. Facing multiple challenges of trying to reshape international experience into a local market and a regional one at that, the Waits are now asking themselves if staying is more short than medium term. I'm really interested to hear how Michael and his family are navigating this period of uncertainty and this deviation from the five-year plan. So welcome, Michael. Thanks, Margot. Great to be here. Hopefully we get a somewhat stable internet connection in uh, rural Australia. Yeah, so um, that is probably the big question is, are you in Normanville or are you in Narracourt? Today in Normanville, Whitney's just finishing a shift, so uh, we, are, we are here. So before we get back into your, I guess, repatriation story, I'm really keen to sort of almost wind the clock back to 23 years ago when you set off for the US. Can you take us back to what life looked like then um, and how, I guess, overseas came to be on the radar? Yeah, I I had finished a couple of unsuccessful years on the tennis tour and went to the United States college system to see if I could reboot the tennis career. And so in 1998, January, into the very, very cold state of Georgia, it felt cold to me coming from the Australian summer, um, started <laughs> college over there and, uh, and that was it. So I played the tour for a couple more years and then while I was over this American summer, but really I would then I'd just transitioned to finish off school and finish my degree in the US in 2001. And then, as they say, the rest is history, but it's just a pocket of three and five year experiences yeah. that quickly added up when I look back. Yeah. So I guess like many expats, you, you've probably never set out, um, as you say, for anything more than, say, three to five years. You had 23 years. Can you talk us about how that unfolded? Sure. Yeah. So the first one was study, uh, 1998, 2001. And then I worked, single guy living in Atlanta, Georgia, in an accounting finance sort of job and frankly just lived at the office. From there, 2004, 2005, I went to MBA, did my MBA at Emory in Atlanta. 
And then I'll call it 2005 through 2008, I was in Atlanta as a CFO of a firm, again, just living at the office, frankly, and then met, met a girl. And then uh, my now wife uh, yeah. followed her career to Seattle, Washington. And so 2008 to 20 to 2012 was with her in Seattle, Washington. Uh, 2008 to 2019 was in Seattle, Washington. So did you did you ever think that after any one of those chapters that you might come back to Australia? A few unsuccessful attempts, actually. So uh, I, I looked at it first after graduating my undergrad. I, I thought, you know what, I'll do a year or two of work and then uh, then come back. And I had a look and then went and said, you know what, I'll do my MBA. And then I do my MBA and they give you a, a visa for a year in the US. Uh, so I did that. And I was then I literally engaged, looked at some recruiters in Sydney and was really thinking about it after my MBA. And that's when I met Whitney, uh, mm-hmm. my network. And, and all that so there was a sort of more energy then to move until and I went to Seattle and uh, that worked and we didn't really look seriously about Australia from sort of 2007 2008 onwards we, we'd talked about we might spend a stint here at some point down the road but uh, but yeah it, once that uh, crossed the threshold into marriage and then all that when you're marrying the American girl that you know that, you know we didn't do it on the premise of them so and so life and career really unfolded. I mean, you've got three kids that were born in the US, um, but you also had a career that really unfolded there. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah, and, and frankly, sitting here after being in Australia now for 15 months, we have these completely confusing kids that were American kids who are now yeah. Australian kids somewhere. I don't know, it's, it's crazy. But uh, yeah, all three kids were born in Seattle. Obviously, my career has been 20 years working in the U.S., um, and they're all dual citizens. So as soon as they were born, one of my number one to-dos was to work with the um, the consulate in San Francisco, based in Seattle. I was based in Seattle, so I would just do the shuttle diplomacy up and down the coast to uh, to get them their dual citizenship, and that was really important. So yeah, no, it's it's been I, look, we were growing. They were American kids, and my my mm-hmm. biggest win in the first couple of years for each of them was. To ensure that Vegemite was achieved and accepted and digested, <laughs> and um, and then take you know we have an Australian bakery in the south of Seattle in a little town called Burien, about thirty minutes south, and so every right. few weeks, month, month and a half, I'd be homesick enough that I'd take them down there and I'd bribe them because there's a little pet shop next to it that they'd go look at the they'd go buy a bunch of pies and pasties and and teach them Lovington. how to eat. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was my big focus was Australian cuisine and uh, and some big victories on that front. So everyone likes Vegemite except my wife. Oh, there you go. There you go. Um, and so your career is finance oriented? Yes. Uh, my, yeah. my background is accounting undergrad, finance MBA, uh, but I've done organisational behaviour with each of those or leadership with each of those degrees. That's my real passion is people. The technical skills, I would say, of accounting finance, it gets me the job, but my real passion's around leadership. And so you weren't actually returning a permanent plan, uh, sorry, a permanent return to Australia um, back in, uh, what was that, 2019, end of 2019. But life and COVID really had other plans, I guess you could say. Um, can you talk to us about how the last 15 months have played out? Yeah, it's been a cluster from a personal level for sure. So we arrived just with a backpack each. Following the sun, we were doing yep. 18-month um, sabbatical as a family. My wow. wife and I quit our jobs and packed everything up into a 
five foot by five foot by five foot storage unit, gave everything else away and landed in November 2019 in Australia. Hoping to spend about 80, 85 days here, just inside the visa yeah, yeah. limitation for Whitney, and then um, and then my mum got sick, unfortunately, literally the first day or two we were here. So it was cancer. Then it became terminal, and so we started treatment. We decided we'd stay here for that. That was November through March, uh, March of 2020. It became terminal at that point. So then we were just committed to staying to be the yeah. end with her, and then COVID obviously was paralleling right there at that point so it was all completely shut down and we just my job my focus turned to being an advocate in the healthcare system which was interesting yep. and then uh whitney became a single parent of three kids again and that wasn't you know wasn't <laughs> wasn't the world we envisioned um and uh, clearly we have we're still very grateful for what we have but mom lost her battle in december 2020 so a very personally challenging one too yeah yeah so it sort of didn't have a lot of well it wasn't a lot of shining lights on it no one thing that you did do during that that year though is you took on a role of reigniting or um establishing the narrow court news newspaper can you tell us a little bit about that yeah that was you know an act of passion probably more than intelligence but it um <laughs> we my mum had worked at the paper for over 30 years um and i mentioned it we, we learnt of the terminal diagnosis in March of 2020. Chemo and the immunotherapy hadn't worked. We were driving back to Narakot to take her home uh, from Adelaide where the treatment was happening. And and that was the 17th of April. And, and literally, I didn't know it, but the week before, the, the local newspaper, the Narakot Herald, had been there for 145 years, had shut down, paused as mm. the corporate that owns it decided it. And, uh, you know, I was like, I thought the person telling me was a joke frankly it was ha- what what like and, and so everything was spinning in our world and you know I, again i sort of said god that just doesn't make any sense i knew it was a good business 10 years ago when mum had left it retired and so that weekend we wrote the business plan 16 days later we had our first issue on the street Fantastic. The, community, the community was amazing and uh and frankly yeah it was it was a nuts 24 7 few months but not probably what i needed to do to my world and my family but but we, it's a bit of a gift to the community and, and to be a part of it was excellent. Amazing. Now, I mean, I'm interested because you have received quite a lot of media attention about that story yourself and we will put a link in the show notes to that. But why do you think the story has resonated with so many people? Yeah, I, I think um, probably just because it was probably a bit, I heard a saying that someone else coined and it was good, it was like, the foolish, brave person. You know, I think that that kind of mixture always is curious to people. And then number two, running into into rural Australia in a pandemic, and and really being proud of what we were doing, launching a new company, six jobs into the community, with a foundation being obviously advertising, sponsorship, membership. People didn't didn't believe it. You know, and and, and I, you know, there was definitely a big part of that motivation for us and the team to so sort of say. A, the community, if you want it, we know you're capable of it and, and we'll help you get there. And, and that, I think sort of that, that combination of curiosity, foolishness with kind of a, geez, that doesn't seem normal and against the grain. And, and I like running like that when we can. And, and certainly when you're backing a town to come through and a community, it was more, you know, all the areas around. So it was cool. Yeah, oh, a good local country community can't be underestimated either. You know, they'll um, they'll jump on board. 
especially after a decade plus of a corporate in the media game telling them that it's their fault that they're having to take away all the journalists and take away all the people because they're not willing to pay enough for yeah. outside being put in their newspaper. You know, it's, you know, deliver a bad product but blame the client. I think we rallied on that and we certainly didn't shy away from telling them your content's good enough and, frankly, we just have 100% local content. So. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you actually have no newspaper or media experience and I guess obviously some of those things gave you the confidence to try, but do you think that entrepreneurialism is a trait of a lot of expats? Yeah, I do, but, but probably even boiling it back even more, Margot, would be just agility to get anything done, right? Like if, if yeah. you, when you're away, you suddenly realise that literally you can move away, but now you've got literally nothing around you. If you want anything to happen, buy anything, do anything, see anything, you got to figure it out. And I, I think that's that's really, think about entrepreneurship, that's really all it is, is like yeah. a blank piece of paper and then if you're willing to go do a bunch of crap, you can maybe do something and you never know how it will turn out. So that's that was kind of it. And, yeah, and being on my own overseas, so many times you just found yourself in these situations where you're like, oh, God, if I could just sort of sit down and cry right now, I would, but yeah. that's not... <laughs> I'm not actually going to do anything and it's not going to find me a bed tonight or it's not going to find me some food or it's not going to, you know, get me be. And so, yeah, there was plenty of those moments. Yeah. The problem-solving um, approach is it just has to be done, doesn't it? You can't sit still. You've just got to, you've got to come up with something. So, yeah. You can do it on your own or very often you can't. So you've got to go figure out how to ask them to help you because you have no idea. So, like you said, I had no experience. And uh, but that gave us a freedom because... I didn't even know all the rules we were breaking and and uh, all the all the frames and all the yeah all the things to do to watch a paper we didn't bother. So uh, it was fun. I think it's a bit like when we first go overseas, isn't it? You know, yeah. very much so. Yeah. The very first experience, we don't know what we're doing. So yeah. Um, now I'm keen to stay on the regional Australia theme just for a minute because. I mean, regional Australia has seen a massive influx of new arrivals due to the pandemic, including expats coming home. What do you see as the opportunities and the challenges for the regions? Yeah, I think, um, I, I, you know, one counter to that a little bit is the southeast of South Australia hasn't really, certainly hasn't got its share. And frankly, it's about, a, I think, about a fifth of the share. If you allocated, there has been a very big spread in regional South Australia, but now it was mm-hmm. one fifth of its I'll call it allocation, if it was to get a per capita allocation. And I think that that's a lot of reflection on the local governments in the area, and frankly, we're covering them, so I've been paying more attention. Um, and, and it really boils back to just a lack of infrastructure, a lack of housing, a lack of uh, the internet speed, which, you know, I'm getting a lot of breakout at my end, but, you know, the internet speed, the hospitals are run down, underserved, no really mm. not reliable. Uh, these the schools are struggling, and and so you know we have wonderful people and wonderful incredible people working in those things, but the uh, the resources and the tools and the support and, and that that they get given by the state and the, and the systems they're trying to operate in aren't succeeding, and and so I would say that the pressure in the southeast particularly has been immense that hasn't really adjusted, and I would imagine and I can already see it as the world emerges from this COVID pandemic. It'll snap back. It's just it's too hard for a lot of people to live and work and play in, in the in the regions. But uh, and that's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. Mm. And so opportunities. Do you see opportunities in the regions? Yeah, I think there's some regions out there doing a good job. I think 
uh, and I think they'll benefit. I do. I think it's where you, uh, as a community, you build that capacity into your systems and, and you can reap rewards and, and really use these kind of moments where the people glance outside of their own city zone and, and maybe can create something there. But, yeah, I do think there'll be some winners. Um, I think, you know, it'll play out. Now, you're looking to reignite your career, albeit in the regions too. I mean, like what are, um, I guess, some of the challenges um, that you've found in reigniting a finance career here? Yeah, I think, look, the first 12 months, i.e. 2020, that's 100% on me. I, you know, I didn't plan on coming to work here. We had no intent. And even though I got quite stuck here, but we were here for my mom and then COVID, every time I would sort of peek up to go, you know what, maybe I should be working because I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting around, but I'm yeah. mom. But then the reality of I'm caring for mom, I want to be with the kids and, you know, and what was left was maybe with Whitney and that was hard on us. But um, but fast forward, um, I'll call it mum passed in December. I spent January, February really helping dad just settle back in. So March 2021, I've opened up and said, okay, I'm quote unquote open for business and really trying to mm-hmm. uh, and then all of a sudden, the sort of the, the, the wave of like, A, like, gee, haven't I been here 15 months? I should actually know what's going on, but I can really yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and two, okay, my story, hopefully it's connecting by now, but really I hadn't done anything to invest in the story. And so there I was, a foreigner in my own homeland or my hometown, and then a story that I didn't even know how to help people connect it to the local market. You know, to the credit of the people I just started to meet, you know, some were like, I, well, you know, they were very good feedback. <laughs> like, I, yeah. what do you think you want to do this? How do, what, do you, what do you want to do? And and, uh, and for me, who's a sort of an industry agnostic person, more about the, I'm more about the organizational challenge and the growth and the, or the distress or whatever the company's in, helping the people alignment and all that. Uh, yeah, it was, it felt like I was going back to coming out of high school to try and find my first job. And, uh, which is, not a warm, fuzzy, very uncomfortable, and frankly, soul-searching ups and downs. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Pretty picture. Yeah, yeah. I do think localising our story is one of the biggest challenges because we need to be informed and educated on the market here and we need to then need to know how to connect it. Well, and it, I would say it took me double a, a double side of the coin. One is it took the coffees to learn that I really didn't know how to connect my story. I had, my finance stories were just different and, and not better or worse. I ran into that brick wall, pulled back. I needed some people, I, I mean, some people will be capable of doing this on their own, I'm not. You know, I needed some help, so I engaged a coach or two and people to help me figure it out, like what was my story in Australia, like translate it essentially. Then I went back for what I'll call second round of coffees, which is where I'm coming probably to the end of that now. I think, you know, it started slowly, but I'm feeling so much better with where they are at. Second, I'll call it coffee second phase. Um, and my own comfort in my own story translated into, into you know, authentic, because it's got to be authentic, right? And you want, so helping my own story feel authentic um, because it, it's my still my story, but it now makes sense in an Australian context. And yeah. so, you know, that's a fail, reassess adjust try it again slowly it got better seven to ten coffees it wasn't quick and then um now i'm feeling really excited actually feeling yeah i'm really enjoying meeting people 
I have my pitch. And frankly, I'm making their coffee a lot quicker. Yeah, well, I think once we, once you've made the initial connection of the dots, you know, you can be, then be front of mind as and when opportunities arise. So I feel like we're going to have to do a follow-up um, interview to find out how and where you've landed because I'm conscious that that hasn't actually happened as yet either. But it's great to hear that, you know, yeah. you're feeling more confident that um, that it's on the, the possibilities are on the horizon. And also at ease, Margot, that, for us, because we never plan on moving back and, and, you know, Whitney's homesick right now, my wife, and, you know, it, but for us, the feeling that, look, if there's something really awesome that we can create here in the time that we're giving, I think if we're willing to spend a long time, it, it would be there. But for the time we're willing to give it, uh, great, fantastic. Mm-hmm. But if not, okay, we love, you know, frankly, we love America. We love a life in America. And uh, we've had a wonderful run there. And you know, the, the really funny thing would be to watch our American kids we became Australians, then return and be the Australian kids <laughs> in American school. Like, what are we supposed to do that? just to see the curiosity of how that whole cluster unfolds? But, but the, uh, but in, in, you know, as we really dial in what's best for our family and our marriage and our kids, and that uh, we, we are really, you know, trying to grapple with it. So I'm just trying to create something so special that it gives us a nice run in Australia if it works. And we can still work through that together. Otherwise, uh, yeah. Otherwise, I think we'll be back in the US. Yeah, and having choice is a wonderful thing. Um, so, it is. yeah, very fortunate. Your wife is also uh, looking to navigate the market here. Can you tell us a little bit about her story and how she's gone with navigating that as an American citizen? Yeah, she's the brains of the family. <laughs> uh, she's a pediatrician. Uh, so, you know, I'm super proud that she's. Um, you know, we met after she was finishing at Emory University in Atlanta, her medical degree and her master's in public health, so double degree. Emory's top, you know, top five medical school in the country. And then she went to Seattle Children's for training and residency and then spent a dozen years there. So publications around research and, and all that. Um, we arrived in Australia, obviously didn't plan on staying, but, you know, nonetheless, we've got her... We, she's a permanent resident now, which is great. So total flexibility right. to work in the workforce. Yeah. But the uh, you know the College of Pediatrics Academy of Pediatrics has other ideas and mm. refuses or will not um, you know will not uh, accredit yeah. uh, these these not and it's not just Whitney. There's there's a whole body of of very talented American doctors and other doctors that um, that perhaps would be you know, would be serving our community well if we had them. But so she's stuck. She, Women's and Children's in Adelaide have been great. They uh, got her baseline junior registrar train accredited so she can do the birth, like she's, you know, doing first year trainee work, uh, that which is not motivating, not, not career. But we're grateful that they uh, felt they could try to start something. And I think if we stay longer, there's some, certainly some good people that we're dealing with that are like, look, we'll try to create something that's meaningful and reflects perhaps the skill set and that. But, you know, we're sad about that. We're, we haven't oriented to what, what, what options might be out there. But right now it's a massive driver to get back to the U.S. at the first point of entry. A, she's homesick. B, you know, she didn't work all this time to then yeah. not use it, you know, and, and, and be told you know, yeah, you can use it, but after six years of training, which training when you're, you know, we, we, we were together, but, you know, with no kids and no commitments, frankly, and, and there's a whole lot different to going into six years of training and 80-hour weeks. Oh, yeah, uh, massive, yeah. With family and three kids and, you know, 
Yeah, and and look, we are. I, I genuinely believe we're all hardwired to want to contribute and to use our skill set. And so, when that is taken away from you, that's an incredibly challenging um, time, and really has a massive impact, I think, on how we transition and how we navigate that. Because you've either got to give something up, <laughs> or you've got to find a new way to go forward, and that's um, that's very very tough, or can be very very tough. Especially when you see the need in the community, right? Like we're in Australia and there's you know, one pediatrician in the entire southeast yeah. and, you know, months, six-month waiting list and there's no, I mean, the fact that you do, it's not about the money, right? We don't even care. Like literally fortunate enough not to have to worry about that, right? I, if I'm working, I'd be doing a community clinic and, and be fine, but they can't all out. It's, it's just nuts. So anyway. No, it's it's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, Australia does have a real opportunity, I guess, to capture the skilled repats and partners um, who've been forced home probably long before they thought they would come home. Um, what do you believe that we as a country can do to encourage people to stay? Yeah, I think I think we have to really be honest to whether we do want them to stay. And I think, you know, it's very easy for the politics to say we do and then but when you don't have the support for, for professional services and, and the like and, and for professional accreditation, then I don't think the rubber hits the road. But let's let's go a next step and say, okay, we really want them here. Great. Okay, well then, you know, we have to create what I, you know, consider just SWAT teams within state or federal, both, to, uh, to help absorb and 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 because you don't want to change the whole system for them. That's no, nice. no. That, that doesn't make any sense. Your whole systems for your you know, established uh, community that's here and there, but but just having these nimble uh, teams that can help really help you bring in, uh, if, if you care, if you really do care and you want to do it, just like you do with, hopefully you're doing with immigration. I realize this is a stretch on a lot of different systems, but, you know, and I think perhaps it just highlights the struggles that we have, you know, whether it be Indigenous affairs or whether it be immigration. And I think, you know, women's rights are finally getting a, a a play here in Australia long overdue and um, frankly this is, w- would be behind all of those right is well you know professionals coming in but I think my argument back Margot is if it's so hard to bring as an Australian to bring a professionally credited partner in and we can't digest them in, in a way and make them a part of our community how on earth can Aboriginal affairs or Women in the world, you know, like how, how on earth can those major issues, those really structural issues, have any chance mm. if you can't even digest mm. a few partners of Australians that can do everything else for them, right? Like, so to me, it's, a, it's, it's really a sign, not that I think, I think they're behind all those big structural issues in our country, but if you can't even go near helping these families like ours, like that, how on earth can you claim that you're really solving the big structural issues? And I think that's a point and reflection that I think we, we would be well served to have an authentic debate around it. And it starts with Senate inquiries and things like that. They have good action items coming out of them. Very few ever get implemented. Yeah, it's those pathways, isn't it? Like pathways of linking the, yes. the findings or the strategy to actual action on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I would argue it's political will of, you know, actually actioning this stuff and, and it's really sad because I think it would uh, it, it could bring a lot of good um, and frankly very positive return on investment from, from a country perspective. 
huge huge well i mean we, we're hearing in the media the phrase you know that we've got everything to gain like as in the brain gain rather than the brain drain that we've heard so much about for for years so whilst we we need if we're going to flip flip it it needs to be more than just language it has to be pathways it has to be open conversation and dialogue around how do we leverage this capability here within industry um, within you know certain roles and and um, sectors um, as well as at a government level so yeah I think that's really important uh, now Michael we um, like to close all of our podcasts with five quick questions um, so I'd love to put those to you today the first one is living overseas opened my eyes to uh, the the importance of home yeah to everyone yeah doesn't matter from the poorest country to the wealthiest like Australia and America like it's just been amazing to see people really want to be home doesn't matter where it is what we view it as it's and I love that I've, I've loved exploring that as part of being overseas great um expats are good for uh, getting things done would be my thing which <laughs> yeah. is an entrepreneurship question I asked earlier but yeah anything you need done I scroll to an expat they know how to get it done and even if they don't really I'll, I'll They'll find out. a way. Yeah, excellent. Um, the best thing I have discovered since arriving home is more bakeries because that's sort of the base <laughs> of my pyramid. Bakeries and the bakeries I can go to them all the time now. Um, so that's that's huge. No, and look, the lack of traffic. I mean, there's just so you know, being in South Australia, there's, there's just so many things about the comforts. I'll say that that that, that make it you know nice and and comfy. So yeah, great. The first thing I'd encourage a new repat to do is uh, get you know this is corny but I just get some rest. Yeah, you know I, I think you, you're so it, it doesn't matter like you just there's another level when you're away overseas of just a, I guess you know you have to be a bit more aware a bit more careful sometimes you know whatever it is wherever you've been you've, you've been employing some extra skills to sort of to get through life and you know I, I think. I struggled with it. I, I probably needed a bit, bit more time and rest just to get perspective and, and think. And not everyone can do that. I realise that and you've got to just hit the ground running. But if you can, try and take some space for yourself. And, and, uh, and it's different. Friends see you differently that you may have thought. You know, it's just everything's moved. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think I think it will help you orient yourself. Oh, I think that's incredible advice. I think we often don't realise how exhausting the whole process of Move, well, A, moving, but transitioning home is. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, finally, a word, song or quote that best describes my time overseas is? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with Bruce Springsteen, Glory Days. That's my, ah, my wife. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Oh, look, Michael, it's been a delight to chat with you and I really thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Margaret. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review, share it with your friends and family, and subscribe for future episodes. For more information on our guests, please head to our website, insyncnetworkgroup.com, where you can check out the show notes and also find more information about our fabulous community and membership offerings.